0: The philanthropic landscape is changing and it's changing quickly between economic instability, the shrinking middle class, generational shifts, and advances in technology. Many nonprofits are falling behind and struggling to find solutions in the traditional marketplace. And it's one of the reasons why Dickerson Baker recently launched a direct response fundraising agency to help you rethink how you engage with donors across the entire fundraising spectrum. If you want help with rethinking your fundraising, Contact me directly at andrew.olson at dickersonbaker.com or visit dickersonbaker.com to learn more. Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, your home for all things fundraising and nonprofit leadership. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I've got a favor to ask. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please go over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate the show and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people and make a bigger impact in the world. So thank you in advance for doing that. Now let's get into today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Olson. and I'm here with my good friend, Nick Ellinger. So Nick is the chief brand officer at Moore. Um, He's been in the nonprofit sector for quite a long time. He's he's got a really broad um, and diverse skill set and experience uh, some of the quick highlights Nick has served as the editor of the agitator um, he was vice president of marketing at donor voice and prior to that was VP of strategic outreach at mothers against drunk driving he's the author of the new nonprofit six models to raise more money and accomplish more mission um, and he's also about to release a brand new book which is what we're going to be talking about today um, before we get into that though Nick welcome to the show
1: Andrew thank you so much for having me today
0: Hey man, um, I'm excited for you to be here. Take a few seconds before we jump into questions, um, and and just expand a little bit on your background. Tell us a little bit about you know your work at Moore, and and you know what's exciting you about the industry these days.
1: Sure. So um, I came to this sector like so many people, uh, tumbling sideways through life. Uh, I had left my job. In, uh, in Nashville to be with my then girlfriend, now wife, so that worked out well. Um, moved to DC and I had been a MAD member since I was so high. Um, and so when I saw the listing for uh, a MAD job opening, it was like that moment in South Pacific where two lovers' eyes meet across the, you know, some enchanted evening. It was that perfect moment. And so I was with MAD uh, four years in public policy and then almost 10 doing direct marketing and. Um, some corporate marketing, uh, some field relations, a little bit of everything uh, rolled into one. Then, as you said, over at Donor Voice, and now I've been with Moore for three and a half years. And the thing that I really love and am passionate about here at Moore is you look at the 2% of GDP that nonprofits have been getting since the Eisenhower administration. And you say, what could we do with 2.5% What Could could we have cured polio faster if it were March of quarters instead of March of dimes? And uh, how much longer would it have taken if it were March of pennies? Because nonprofits do so much in this world, so much transformative change and really give that outlet to changing society within these democratic structures, small-D democratic structures, that it's just a passion for me and I love being able to help nonprofits every day, uh, bring more people into the wonder that is philanthropy.
0: Awesome. So I know more because you and I met when I, when we both worked for the enterprise. Um, but a lot of our listeners might not, um, give us the the quick 30 second who, who is more and, and what do you do? Sure.
1: So we are a data driven constituent experience company. We. We look at how people become volunteers, become donors, become constituents, and how they move through that journey and work on every point in that journey. That's every channel, other than face to face, we'll we'll work with others for face to face, but uh, mail, digital, TV, audio, PSAs, all of that. And then every stage in that journey. So we can help you with your audience building, your production, production management strategy and creative data, anything that you need across that spectrum. So we try to go wide, we try to go deep and it's really trying to create that full on constituent experience platform that ensures that your donors have a great experience, one that causes them to retain and upgrade and feel fulfilled in their giving.
0: Awesome. So we're here today because you are about to release In fact, I think it's uh, available for pre-order on Amazon, but but you're you're about to release the book, The Perfect Donor Communication, Increased Revenues and Donor Satisfaction with Personalization and Machine Learning. Tell me what drove you to write that book.
1: Well, I've been, as I think all of us are, I've spent the last 16 years trying to get the perfect donor communication, the one that was handed down uh, from the copyright God or God's the one with the perfect imagery, the the right ad text, and all of those sorts of things. And looking at the ways that you can segment a file, the ways that you can now personalize and customize across all of these different channels, it dawned on me that there is no perfect donor communication. The perfect donor communication is one that is perfect for the individual receiving it. And so there's this transformation from trying to find the platonic ideal direct mail piece or the perfect ad. And how do we create the perfect ad or the perfect direct mail piece for this person? And that's something that when I started would have been pie in the sky. You can do a couple of different customizations on a direct mail piece. You may be able to drop in the dear blank on an email, but now you have digital presses that are that paint on paper with a, a, the can uh, with data as its ink and paper as the canvas. You have infinitely variable digital communications, but the problem is there are all of these different things you can customize by, all of the different things that make me, me, and you, you, that you can't keep it all straight in your head. You know, we frequently go to recency, frequency, and monetary value, because we can hold three things in our head at a time. Maybe, maybe we can pick one thing that's important to our organization, connection to this disease. Have they been to the museum? Have they experienced hunger? Those types of variables and add that in. But in the book I go through A to Z, literally 26 different variables that you can profitably customize, personalize and select for an audience by. And we can't hold all all of that in our head. And so the advantage of artificial intelligence and specifically machine learning is that you can do that. Now with generative AI, you can create these customized communications. You can take all of these things into account. It takes a lot of work to do that, but it is so well worth it when there's a fully customized letter on the other end that makes it feel like you've known me for years.
0: So Nick, this all sounds interesting. Tell me, you, you, you mentioned the the twenty six different you know variables, the A to Z. Give me some examples. Uh, you know, beyond beyond like you said, you know, maybe they've had a disease or they visited a museum. You know, for for the basic general nonprofit that's that's listening to this, what are some other of those variables that might be um, impactful to their fundraising if they were to be able to customize them? Sure.
1: So in, in the alphabet, V is for volunteer. Someone who's volunteered with an organization is somewhere between 63 and 170% more likely to donate to the organization. So you want to account for that when you're selecting. Uh, volunteers respond better to a lower dollar ask versus those with a previous giving history. And so you want to change the ask level and customize to them. You want to, in that mail piece, acknowledge that they're a volunteer, thank them for their time. time. Long-time volunteers volunteer more time after they donate. And so Mm -hmm. there's this virtuous cycle that goes into it. Um, So that's one example. Another I is for ideology. Um, You can, depending on your organization, conservatives may donate more to you, liberals may donate to you, or they may give similar amounts but in different ways. And so you want to account for that in your selecting. Then there's different moral language that different people of different ideologies use. And so using different language in a direct mail-a-piece, so uh, there are five different moral values that people look at, and both conservatives like Frank Lunds on the right and George Lockoff on the left both say, Here's the way that these values work. Progressives value care and fairness as values more. Conservatives value loyalty, authority, and sanctity more. And so you can activate those in your copy in different ways. Those switches in language make a difference. And if you're going against the grain to your ideology, you're appealing to an an ideology that you haven't reached before, you can have cross-cutting language that helps you figure out how to get past people's filter bubbles. And so in a study of, um, in support of Syrian refugees, people used imagine language to say, imagine that you're a Syrian refugee coming into the country with only the clothes that you have on your back. What would you do? How would you go about your life? And conservatives who got that message were more likely to write the White House in support of letting in Syrian refugees than liberals who didn't receive that that language. And so the language became more important than the ideological label. And so there's a way to work with that language, and there's also a way to tack into the wind. And so those are just two of the types of variables that you can be accounting for. And you don't have to be a extreme left or extreme right organization to take advantage of those different ways that people process the language that you're using.
0: So that makes a ton of sense to me. Um, but I, I imagine there's a, there's a you know nonprofit marketing director or fundraiser sitting somewhere listening to this going, how do I even keep track of all that information? Like, you know, my standard CRM probably doesn't have a field for ideology, right? So how how do organizations harness this kind of power and what are the technical things that are necessary to make this even possible?
1: Sure. So the, the, uh, the part that my son refers to as daddy's alphabet book is the first part. And then the second part is talking about how you crawl, walk, run, and bicycle your way to this future. And the, the key first steps are building that data infrastructure. It's uh, when I came to the Mad National Office, this is in 2007 for fundraising, we had over 20 different databases at the national office alone. And so you, I had to go in and kill them off like weekend house guests in an Agatha Christie novel. You know, you have to get that all as part of one coherent data truth. You have to clean that data and get it all working together, even if it's not in the same database. You want to be investing in data, whether it's enhancing your existing data by appending data to it, or working with a provider, and obviously Moore has this as part of its Cloud system, um, but working with a provider that has all of that data and can model off of it behind the scenes and tell you these are the people to appeal to in this way, these are the people to appeal to in another way. We call it a constituent data platform. In the for-profit world, it's a customer data platform of, you know, we're looking at constituents, that data platform has the capacity to take in all of your donor information, have all of this constituent information available in the system, select your audience for you, and recommend all of the language that can go in. So finding the right data partners is essential here. It's also important to be that all of the testing that we were doing to create the platonic ideal perfect donor communication is going to help you here because there's this illusion that if something won by 20%, it's the winner, it's the king of the hill, and you're trying to knock something off that hill. In reality, what's probably happened is one version is better for two-thirds of the population, the other version is better for one-third of the population. And we call the first part a winner and the second part a loser, but in reality, They're both a winner to the right audience. And so it's going back through your data systems with this knowledge. So once you have ideology uh, appended, going back through and doing the analysis to say, oh, this piece that I thought didn't work actually worked better among my volunteers or actually worked better among my conservatives or worked better among those who prefer premiums. Those types of things to say, okay, now I have now I have instead of one row, I have two rows. I have two different communications that can go through. And as humans, we can manage two rows. Going to the next level takes that machine learning when you're going into thousands and millions and billions of rows.
0: So how do we balance this? Because I feel like so often there's a push to to make everything more simple, right? Yes. Um, you know, how, how do we how do we reduce friction how do we make you know the experience more simple how do we make how do we streamline work um, so that we can either get more done in the same amount of time or get more done with fewer resources how do we balance that with what sounds like a fairly complex process needed to get to this this kind of outcome
1: So it's definitely a complex process. At the same time, some of these systems can be incredibly time-saving. When you put two databases together, you no longer have to do a query that takes information out of one and puts it into the other. And so in some cases, it's investing a fixed time amount so that you don't have to do the same thing over and over and over again. And then when you get into things like generative AI, there was just a study that came out that they paired college-educated people and gave them a writing task. Those who had access to a generative AI, I believe it was ChatGPT in the case, spent 40% less time on it and had, I believe, a 16% increase in the effectiveness of their communication that came out. So less time that went in, higher quality that came out. And so that's that idea of the bicycle. The bicycle comes from Steve Jobs talked about how computers can be the bicycle for the mind. I think what we're seeing with generative AI right now is the fulfilling of that promise that generative AI can be your bicycle, but you have to work together with it because it does have some challenges and does have some flaws. And so using these tools it's not hopefully increasing the amount of time you're spending. It's reallocating that time. It's reallocating the time to setting up the systems rather than working within them, and it's shifting the time toward doing the things that only humans can do, or where humans add the most
0: value. Okay, so let's let's talk about that for a second because I know in in your in the book you talk a little bit um, about using um, AI to to kind of write and and craft those communications, which I think a lot of a lot of people in our industry, particularly some of the artist class, w- would be mortified by that idea, right? And and the with the fear that oh, you're going to have this cold sort of um, you know dispassionate copy that just doesn't speak to anybody, really. How do we balance that? And is it this human and and machine interaction, or is there something else? that helps ensure that even if we do push some things like copywriting into, um, into an AI you know, automation, um, how, how do we maintain the humanity in it?
1: Yep, so um, there's, I, I would say that you have a definite creative divide on this, where some creatives are exactly as you described and some of them are thrilled by the opportunity to work with and have new outlets for this. And so there's been this cottage industry of folks who go into ChatGPT and say, write a fundraising letter, and then they get the output and say, okay, it's not specific, it's not emotional, and whew, our jobs are safe. But think of if you had gotten that as a creative, as your creative brief, write a fundraising letter. Well, if you ask for a letter, you get a letter. You don't get a specific letter for your organization. You didn't ask for that. You didn't get an emotional letter. You didn't ask for that. ChatGPT is a chat engine. You didn't ask the follow-up question saying, you know, that's a good start, but now incorporate an urgent deadline, report back on what their previous support did, add more vivid imagery. And so Doreen Ocam, who is chief development officer at the Armed Services YMCA and I did a panel at uh, the Nonprofit Alliance. And uh, full disclosure, Doreen's an old friend. We worked at MAD together. And she, I I played the role of ChatGPT just reading out what she had done. She started off with a general prompt for her organization. Pretty good, but general letter. Then she asked it to focus on food insecurity. Better letter. Then she asked for it to be from a particular person who used the Armed Services YMCA food pantry to help their family. It was emotional and it was affecting. And then she asked for it to be customized to people who were connected to the military and added identity prompts. And by the end, the worst thing that the fundraisers and the audience could say about the letter is it didn't have a PS to it. And that (laughs) is a challenge of machine learning. If you ask ChatGPT to write you a fundraising letter, it's going to endeavor to write you the most letter letter that ever lettered, the letteriest letter. Because it's trained on all of these letters to say, what is, let's shoot for that letterness. What it's not going to look at right now is what makes an effective letter. And so the key and the horizon that we need to hit, one that we're working toward, is how do you train the system and tell it on effectiveness. So one of the things that's exciting about more is we have, we do more than 50% of the response management for the nonprofit industry. So we have that data coming back in to help and train new systems to say what is effective. And when you get that loop going to say, just like we would as humans, okay, I looked at the test results. This one worked, this one didn't work. A machine learning system can do that, but they can do it at scale, and it can do it across millions of versions in ways that we can't. There was one year at Mad, our acquisition letter wasn't working, and so I tried 74 different treatments of acquisition letters across that year. And you know, Edison said he found 20,000 ways not to make a light bulb. I found 72 ways not to make an acquisition letter. Uh, two of them worked, <laughs> thankfully. But a machine learning system can put that to shame. It can do thousands, millions of different versions and learn from each one of them. The secret behind machine learning isn't that it's an extremely effective learning tool. Our brains are still far better. But that it can get so many more reps in. It can do so much more simulation in real time and do much more testing to be able to learn from it. And so that's the, that's the horizon that we're pushing toward. And the creative is still vitally important because the most effective fundraising letter, if you tell a machine learning system, your goal is to maximize revenue, write a fundraising letter. It will cut letters out of a magazine and say, we have your daughter, give us all the money in your bank account. And that is a highly effective letter. You will respond to that letter, and your average gift will be high. It's not an ethical letter. It's mm-hmm. not in concert with our brand standards. So we work with a lot of organizations that say, you don't say homeless, you say people experiencing homelessness, because you don't want to define the person by the issue. At Mad, we would never say accident, we always say crush, because it's not like whoopsie-doodle, I had too much to drink and I killed someone. It is a it's a series of conscious and felonious hmm. acts. And we have brand we have in some cases brand books that are two hundred fifty pages and you know all of, uh, and people use brand as a cudgel to say well I don't like it and therefore it shouldn't go out. Those rules will kind of fade into the background, but there are some. Few rules tightly held that we want to hold on to. Mad, if you gave them a million dollars, would not say accident. It's that tightly held. And so you need to be able to tell the machine learning system we don't say that, we say this. And you need to have goals that go beyond I'm trying to raise the most money. I have ethical boundaries, I have legal boundaries, I have discursive boundaries. And the creative part of humans needs to still be there to generate the new. I want to go after a new audience. That's something that ChatGPT may be able to help you with. But if you're going way off of what you've done before, it doesn't have the training data to be able to say, this is how you approach that audience. And so a human is providing us so much grist for that mill to do the things that aren't as creative, and the creatives can get even more creative. You know, you see stories right now. BuzzFeed is now doing its quizzes with AI, and you look at that and you go, they weren't. Those weren't automatically generated to begin with. You know, that lower value of creativity is coming off the place, and it will really highlight those creative folks who are pushing the envelope into new audiences, trying new things. That yes, in the future, folks, these systems will train off of, but it's that partnership that's going to be essential.
0: Cool. So one of the things that I know a lot of people have talked about <clears throat> with respect to to AI and machine learning is the the concern around sort of the the biases used to create the technology in the first place and to to populate data over time talk talk a little bit about how that plays into this and and what we as users and, and and consumers can do to affect that
1: so it's it's important to separate in my mind the the biases that come out the biases that go in and the biases that are in the machine learning system there is really no racist way to do stochastic gradient descent. There's no sexist way of doing uh, a decision tree analysis. The, sy- the tools that we're using are agnostic. The challenge is with the training data that we put into the system. And if that has bias in it, and it will have bias in it of some type, then you will get bias out great example is, Amazon was looking at doing a machine learning system for its hiring. And it, tech company, it had had some bias in how it hired and how it promoted according to sex going in. And so it, the machine learning system then tried to replicate that and weighted men over women. And they said, wait, that you can't do that, obviously. We're going to take out any consideration of sex slash gender. Well, then the machine learning system, it's still trying to replicate that bias. It's still trying to get the results that you gave it that it's training on. And so it started penalizing you if you had been in a sorority, if you played women's lacrosse, if yeah. and uh, if you were in a fraternity, it boosted you. It found other indicators for that. So Amazon said, okay, take out any consideration. Take out these key words that you might be looking at. Well, then the system started discriminating based on the verbs that people used in resumes. Men tend to use a different cohort of verbs to describe the actions that they have in their resumes than women do, because it's trying to replicate that bias. And as long as you have bias data going in, you will have bias data coming out. And that is an extreme challenge. Think about if you have, a, if you have done a premium-based program in the past. And no shade on this, at MED, I have I have shoved everything in an envelope that you can put into an envelope. So I'm, um, and one of the central challenges we had, and I have, and organizations have, it, who have do premium programs, is if you have a premium acquired program, you're going to have get people who respond to premiums, and if you send a non-premium package to that audience, it will look like the piece failed. When, the, when it was really the piece audience match that failed. And if you try to acquire with a non-premium program, you'll get some non-premium donors. And they will look, puke, and leave when, they see, when they're exposed to the actual donor program. And so you look at this and you say, if, if a machine learning system looked at this, they would say non-premium communications don't work and non-premium donors don't work. Now, replace premium and non-premium with white and black or replace it with Protestant-Catholic or conservative-liberal. Those are the biases that we have unintentionally created in our programs. We have created and we have modeled for these systems and when we use RFM analysis, when we use transactional-based modeling, there is no way, no way of a 49-year-old having a 50-year donor history. And so an 80-year-old will always get privileged on that basis. So age is a very simple example of this. If you're sending out premium packages to folks, well, yes, the premium donor donated more frequently, we should send them more things. And so the frequency goes up for that donor population. It goes down for the non-premium donor because they're not a quote-unquote good donor. And so it's self-reinforcing, just like any of these biases. And the challenge with putting this into a machine learning system isn't that the machine learning system biased. It's that the it's trying to replicate the biased world that we've given it. And so it's incumbent upon us. You talked earlier about how will creative folks react to this? It's an incumbent upon the creative folks to say, we're not reaching this audience, let's figure out new communications that might reach it. It's also incumbent upon us to audit our data systems to say, are we entrenching some of these biases? Should I be going out to a greater cohort of conservative folks or Hispanic folks or folks who have not been a volunteer with us or or look at these different variables and say, How do I reach out to those who are adjacent to our mission, but not yet there? And the great news is, well, the challenging news is that it's hard. The great news is that that's where opportunity lives. That we have now the opportunity to try new communications to new people who are waiting to join our missions, but just haven't had the right communication.
0: So let's pause on that for a second, because I agree with you there. Um, but I think the, the big challenge that I often see is that when organizations fall into this trap of like net optimization, they often end up pushing those adjacent audiences out because that's not going to generate the most immediate net in a particular campaign. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you have to shift your mindset as you think about these things to to account for... You know, what is the impact of long-term versus near-term improvements?
1: Yep. I mean, the as with so many things in uh, business, I blame Excel because <laughs> you look at Excel and it, it, your mail is on one sheet and your digital is on another, and as long as things are on two different worksheets of Excel, they might as well be in two different universes and different planets within those universes. Like, and that's how we budget, and that's how we think. And it's the same thing to some extent with short-term and long-term. We view those as two very separate things. And so part of the culture change that we need to be creating to get ready for this model is looking at long-term net donor lifetime value for the sum of the file, as our goal. And those things that are legal, ethical, uh, in line with our brand standards, that increase that are good, and those that decrease it are bad. And once you have that sort of lens on communications, your decisions become so much easier. I think of Herb Kelleher, founder of Southwest Airlines. They said, I can teach you how to, he said, I can teach you how to run this airline. It is that Southwest is the low-cost airline. And someone will come to you and say, you know, I think that it would be really nice if people could have a nice salad on these longer flights. And we've done this customer research, and people like the salad, and they think you weren't going to pay more for it. And he said, that's interesting. But will adding a salad make us the low-cost airline? Because if if it isn't, we're not going to put in any darn salad Mm. and net donor lifetime value with all the provisos in from earlier is that sort of lens. It is, it accounts for all of the different challenges and cross cutting metrics that you would have in there. If you're told to maximize response rate, great. You set your ask string at a dollar. You will get more donations, you'll get them in, and your average gift will plummet. And vice versa. If you are incentivized to get average gift, your response rate will plummet. You'll go to the one person who can give you a large check. All of these things are a balance. And net lifetime value balances value of donor versus quantity of donor. It balances short-term versus long-term. All of those things come into this. It balances cost to acquire, because we all know sometimes you will say, oh, I want to minimize cost to acquire. But that gives you lower quality donors in the long term. And so you've gotten really good at recruiting donors who will be really bad for you. That lifetime value takes all of that into account. And so there are these cultural changes that are necessary to get you to an AI machine learning future, that good news will help you in the short term as well. It will help you make the decision, should I use guilt in this appeal? Yes, it will help me increase response rate for this appeal, but it will make the person less likely to open the envelope, respond to the ad, watch the commercial over the long term. So because I'm focused on lifetime value, I can make that decision, I can make it easily, and I can make it using data. Because now what we can do is we can model for someone at the point of acquisition what they're going to look like for the future. So I can decide what acquisition I want to do, what is working for me in longer-term ways with a short-term lens.
0: That, I, I like that a lot. Okay. So we're we're just about approaching uh, the end of our time together this morning but but i want to key in on something else you said you you mentioned that going in this direction does require cultural change you just described a little bit of a, of it a, around sort of what kpis we need to look at and how we need to think about that but i want to hone in on 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 the the human piece of this for a minute talk to us a little bit about what if any changes in the type of people we might need to hire to do this work at scale over time? What kind of different training and experiences uh, someone in this seat as we move into this sort of uh, uh, AI supported arena? Like, like how does that person fundamentally look different or do they than a candidate uh, or an employee doing this kind of work a decade ago? What, what are the different skill sets, experiences, trainings, mindsets that that someone needs to have in order to do this effectively? Versus someone who ran an annual fund program a decade ago,
1: and there's certainly nothing wrong with that person who ran an annual fund program a decade ago. Sure, uh, you know, I, 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 yeah. kept, I definitely was that person. Uh, and Same so, here. <laughs> uh, we we've we've all we've all been there, and it's you are looking for the quality of experimentation and acceptance of the new. You're looking for someone who is willing to say, we're not going to do it that way just because it has been done that way in the past. And so within that mindset, within that mindset, you can have so many different types of people approaching it. Someone who's run an annual fund, this is great for someone who's a major gift officer who wants to think about donor-centric communications in different ways. It is great for the CEO that wants to learn, um, but it is that want to learn that I think is the essential component here. And the great news is that there are more tools than there ever have been to be able to create these things. LinkedIn Learning has free generative AI courses, Uh, Google has free generative AI courses. Coursera, you can get the equivalent of a college education uh, in a year for 400 bucks on Coursera. uh, And then so many other free courses within that. And so there's so many different ways of learning about it. And part of the great part of generative AI is that the learning can be all self-directed. It's, I go into ChatGPT, I go into Dolly, I go into MidJourney, and I try something, and it doesn't work the way I wanted it to. And you say, hmm, instead of, okay, I'm on to the next thing, it's, hmm, what can I do to get the result that I'm looking for? How do I hone this in? Um, I am, And there was a great study on customer service agents working with a generative AI. And those who are most experienced didn't see as much of a boost as it than those who are newer to the profession and needed that guidance. And so it can be, it can help be a guide for those folks who are using it in a bicycle-like way. So there really is no substitute for being willing to jump in and fail and learn and fail better continually because the big thing about the perfect donor communication is there is no perfect, there's only more perfect. Like our country, we're trying to be a more perfect union. We're looking for continually more perfect donor communications. And that that's the way we're going to, I, I hate to use the phrase, beat the for-profit sector, but this is a technology that is relatively new. No one has more than a year's worth of experience on ChatGPT on GPT 4 because it's not been out for a year. And so we can be this new vanguard of people working on these systems and talking to people in new ways that engage them in the mind and in the heart.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to getting my copy of The Perfect Donor Communication, Increased Revenue and Donor Satisfaction with Personalization and machine learning. Nick, when will it be out?
1: So, it should be out July 31st. Ready for pre-order now on Amazon.
0: All right, you heard it. Pre-order on Amazon right now. Go out and get that book. And uh, Nick, how do people get in touch with you if they want to learn more?
1: Sure. I'm available at uh, n-ellinger at wearemore.com That's N-E-L-L-I-N-G-E-R at wearemore and more has two O's dot com. Um, And uh, my personal email is nickellinger at gmail.com. So love to hear from you.
0: Thanks for being here, Nick. Uh,
1: Thank you so much for having me. And
0: thanks for, yeah, thanks for the contribution to the industry. Um, It's always good to see you, man. Good
1: to see you as well. Have a good one.
0: Thanks again for joining us today for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review so we can get our message out to more nonprofit leaders. And as always, feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or at andrew at andrewolson.net. Be well, friends.